Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds, change votes, and win elections. Ravi, I uh, am kind of tired from this book tour business. Uh, (laughs) Thank you to everybody listening uh, for making the book a bestseller. That's pretty awesome. And just the incredible feedback I've gotten from people and how much the book has meant to them. So thank you to everybody. But Ravi, what have you been up to? I feel like I haven't talked to anybody who wasn't an interviewer in a week and a half. Well, I just want to say everybody in my life keeps mentioning to me that they've bought the book or have already bought it. My mom texted me over the weekend saying she just bought it. People are raving about it. Not like in that fake kind of like they feel like they have to say nice things, but people really love this book, which is something, you know, I've known all along since you shared an early draft of it. It's so awesome. So what's this one highlight from your experience of being out there? Maybe somebody you met or an interview you did where you're like, this was, this is what I'll remember most from this past few weeks. Uh, There's been so much stuff. I'll just pick something really recent. We did the book signing in Kansas City last night, and a lot of people came up with very personal stories, ways that it touched them. One person came up uh, who said, you know, I, I had said on stage something about how, you know, I had written the book because there's some younger person out there, some kid out there who like was where I was 14 years ago, who was like, well, whatever I went through, it doesn't count. So I don't need to go get help. And then they're going to wait too long. And this person came up and they were like in tears. And they they said, when you said that, I realized, I think that's me. So I think I'm going to go get help. And And I've just had a lot of interactions like that over the last week and a half. So, Wow. And are you still going to hit the the road a little bit or are you kind of done? Yeah. Um, If you're listening to this on Thursday, I will be in St. Louis in conversation with Jill Shoup, 7 p.m. Thursday, the 14th. And that actually, it's pretty cool. That event sold out, but then they moved it to a larger space. So there are tickets still available if you're listening to this in the morning. Nice. You made me laugh. I think you told me the other day that somebody... I think you were in DC or something, and somebody asked if I was with you. Like I'm your bodyguard. I get a lot of like, "Where's Ravi?" <laughs> you carry me in your suitcase. They go, "Where's uh, Ravi?" And I'm like, uh, "Living his life." <laughs> I love the idea that that I'm just like I'm like the Reggie to you. Like I'm. Just Do people ever ask Reggie. you like, "Where's Jason?" You know, it doesn't come up. My mom does ask about you an awful lot. She's always concerned about you. But oh, nice. I think other than that, yeah, no, things have been good. I feel like, you know, it's summertime in New York. I did a, a tennis camp because I'm oh, that's I right. basically live my life like a, like a middle schooler. <laughs> but I, 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 I went up to tennis camp because our, our staff has been off the past two weeks. And I did one, it's like they do these camps in three-day segments. And because I didn't have to come all the way back to my office – I basically worked from upstate and I did three camps in a row to the point where the people <laughs> who run the camp were like, hmm, do you think it's time for you to go home soon? It's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So I'm, I'm going to write an article because now I've done a couple adult camps. At some point, I think I'm going to pitch like Outdoor Magazine or something about like the power of adult camps. Cause you I'm a should. So you've done camp. surfing, yeah. you've done tennis. I did Power Monkey Fitness Camp, by the way. Shout, shout out to Sadie, who's one of our listeners. She runs it. It's a, a camp in, in East Tennessee for CrossFitters and When gymnasts. was that? This was back before we did the podcast. This would have been 2019. Yeah. And I went out there to an actual summer camp that they do it in. They're great. So pitch me, audience. Send me messages. I would love to hear your ideas of what camp I should go to next. There are probably some people in my life who are going to dissuade me from doing any more of these, but I think- I, I love the concept, you know, like why stop when you're a kid? Well, I'm thinking of like 
this week True has Steam Camp, and he has you know like oh uh, yeah, and then and then he has um, basketball. So I mean, you could just take after. Maybe you should just be here and going to day camp with True. Well, I have been to True's camp last summer with you. I went to <laughs> that's True's true. Camp, you so have, I'm gonna actually. go. I'm gonna go check. I'm gonna go check in with those people. Just be like, hey, what's the age limit here? Uh, <laughs> But, you know, in the interest of not giving our producer anything to cut here, why don't we get to the news of the week? Well, we got to talk trash first. Yeah, I guess they're both kind of the same. I wanted to start with something that's a little bit talking trash, a little bit substantive, which is we've covered Elon Musk a few times on this podcast, and it is now official that he is backing out or trying to back out of his deal to acquire Twitter. And just yesterday, so we record on Wednesday, so yesterday Twitter dropped a 62-page lawsuit in the Delaware Court of Chancery, and they are trying to get Elon Musk to stick to this deal. This is really interesting for a lot of reasons. Most importantly, I would say, because Musk, in all likelihood, will not be acquiring Twitter and doing all the things that he's talked about doing, like cleaning up the bots and you know promoting his particular version of free speech and all of that. But from a legal perspective, this is interesting because Musk is citing as his reason for backing out of this deal that he thinks that Twitter misstated or misrepresented how many bots are on the platform. And Twitter basically dropped a whole bunch of information in this lawsuit saying, yo, we did disclose that. And actually, that's not even a good reason to back out of this deal. And really interesting is that as part of the contract with Musk, apparently there's what's called a specific performance clause, which means that Twitter has at least language in their contract that they believe can force Musk to buy this company, which would be a really interesting result. So he may end up with it and not want it. Like, yep. It's, yeah. it's, I mean, it is like the embodiment of the old, like the dog that caught the car. Totally. Like, well, there, there are a couple of outcomes here that people can watch. And, and just, I know that people are not necessarily familiar with the Delaware Court of Chancery, but Delaware is where a lot of corporations reside because they have favorable laws. And one of the things that's favorable about Delaware for corporations is that they move fast when it comes to stuff like this, because corporations want to resolve their disputes in ways that are transparent, predictable, and quick. And so this is not going to be a jury trial. This is going to be a judge deciding this. And there are four outcomes. One is a settlement, which is how this usually goes. Although I think given Musk's personality, I don't see that happening here. And given like how expensive a settlement will be for him. The second outcome is that the court finds in Musk's favor. I literally could not find a single expert on corporate law in any of the articles written, including in right-wing publications who thought this is even an option for Musk. The other option is that there's a billion-dollar penalty in this contract for him backing out, but that's only in certain circumstances where he can't acquire financing and things like that, not for a circumstance like this, probably. Most experts think the likely outcome actually is that this specific performance clause kicks in, which means that Musk would not just be on the hook for $1 billion, which many people think is the best outcome for him, but that he could be on the hook for the full something like on the order of $44 billion that this deal would have meant for him at the time when it was priced in, and or that he owes Twitter the difference between the share price that he offered and what the, the company is trading for right now, which is a whole lot of fucking money. Well, so basically, the likely outcome is a settlement, but it's just not a pre-judgment settlement. It's just once he gets a result that is untenable yeah. for him, he settles. He says, like, look, I'm not going to contest this if we yeah. settle for this. Well, he's Musk, though, right? So who the hell knows? And I think yeah. a, what a lot of corporate law experts are wondering is specific performance is really hard in this context. Because like you could imagine a circumstance where, like, let's say I have a beat up old pickup truck in my backyard and you you promised me you'd buy it. And it's like and but you're backing out of the deal. Right. Like a normal judgment would be like, you just got to give me the money you promised me. But look, let's right. say I have I have interest outside of just the money. Let's say like I want my daughter's birthday is coming up and I need to get that truck out of my backyard. Like the judge could say, you have to go pick up that truck, which is an easy thing to enforce. Or like you could imagine like an environmental case where you have to clean up stuff. And so it's not just about the money that's at issue, but also like the expertise you have to do it. So in this case, they'd say you have to buy the company, but like Musk like lined up financing and things like that. So are there are other people at work here. Like how do you really force somebody to buy a company is going to be something that's going to be really hard for this judge and Delaware generally to figure out. And so I think that's why, just from a strictly legal perspective, this is interesting. 
But it could move fast because there's like there's basically two questions at issue here. One is, is Musk even raising an issue that could get him out of this contract, right? And that's a question of law. And as you know, as a as a former lawyer, that that's usually a pretty quick determination. And then a lot of people think that'll be in Twitter's favor. So that could happen really fast. And But even if they say this is a claim that could conceivably be raised, then it becomes finding a fact at which now all the discovery kicks in, which needless to say, when Musk is involved, it will be really interesting just yeah. getting at all of his messages, you know? Yeah. For those who don't know, like discovery is literally like, turn over all your emails about this. Turn over all your, like, oh, that's going to be, yeah, he might settle at that point, um, he, you know? Because that that can affect like Tesla's stock. That can affect all sorts of things. Right. And to preview our January 6th stuff that we're going to talk about a little later, a lot of the stuff that we know about January 6th is because of the congressional basic version of discovery, like people having being compelled to turn over their communications. So that will be fascinating. Another fascinating element of this, though, is that Elon Musk, you know, one erratic billionaire, uh, was tussling with another erratic potential billionaire in Trump. Trump uh, weighed in on this and called Elon a bullshit artist. And Trump was speaking at a rally in saying this. And then Musk responded saying that it was time for Trump to sail off into the sunset, uh, basically saying he was too old. And this prompted a lot of speculation as to what is going on here. And and there was some good reporting in Rolling Stone basically saying people close to Trump, which you know what that kind of means sometimes in these articles, are pissed off that Musk has been flirting with a DeSantis run. All really juicy, reminding our audience that we're in the talking trash element of this. That's why we're a little gossipy on this. But I just find this little spat interesting. It seems like Musk is having a little bit of a rocky start to his his uh, his time as a Republican, remembering that he declared as a Republican like a month or two ago. It just goes to show you that when you join a party because you got hurt in your feelings and not because you agree with them on hardly anything, perhaps it's going to be hard to fit in. The thing with Musk is like, this is a case of your strengths and your weaknesses being related is like the things that make him move fast, innovative, all that also got him into a bit of a bind here because he could have exercised that $1 billion out, which although a billion dollars is a lot, he would take that today in a heartbeat if he could. He could have exercised that if he just would have shown he couldn't have lined up his financing, which was an easy thing for him to do. But his ego would not allow him as the richest guy in the world to admit that he couldn't line up financing. So he has now gone down this much more expensive road that could cost him essentially all of his liquid assets. Like the reason why the Tesla stock has been dropping in tandem with all this is because people are going to expecting him to do a fire sale on his Tesla stock. And- that's just really interesting. It's just the cost of ego, you know? That's wild. All right. Well, here's something completely different. This is the honorable mention for Talking Trash, uh, which I don't know, Ravi, if you have been following the Herschel Walker candidacy in Georgia at all, but this fella, I'm reluctant to talk about all the really, really dumb things he says because he, I think, pretty clearly has CTE from his time in the NFL. But on the other hand, uh, you know, he's running for a U.S. Senate seat against our friend, uh, you know, Reverend Warnock, and it could be like a really important seat. So like, you know, there's not a lot of room. For, and also this is talking trash. So with that said, let me find this video for you. In America, you have some of the cleanest air and cleanest water of anybody in the world. So what we do is we're going to put from the Green New Deal millions or billions of dollars cleaning our good air up. So all of a sudden, China and India ain't putting nothing in there cleaning that situation up. So all that bad air is still there. But since we don't control the air, our good air decided to float over to China, bad air. So when China gets our good air, that bad air got to move. So it moves over to our good air space. And now we got to clean that back up. Well, Jason, could you translate that for me? Like, he's saying that our clean air went to China and their bad air came here. Is that what he was saying? Yeah, I don't know what's hard to understand about that, Ravi. Like, what is there to translate? <laughs> it's, so let me be clear. Um, our good air went to China and China's bad air came to us. Why should we have to clean up China's bad air? Yeah. Which I guess the argument is, why should we do anything about climate change when it's clearly not at all our fault, <laughs> I guess. I, I'm trying to make it make some more sense. 
I suspect he doesn't know how air works. I'm not sure what's going on. I actually, this isn't even a talking trash segment. This is a what the hell did that mean segment? This is like a sincere concern for the the well-being of a Senate candidate segment. Uh, right. Which is like, that doesn't, yeah. I I don't know what to do with this other than to like really hope that the people of Georgia who've really come through for us, I would say, over the past few cycles, you know, especially with that Senate runoff and then the uh, obviously delivering the election for Biden, we've just got to hope that they're going to recognize this for what it is, which is a complete disaster. I, I want to stay on this clip for a second, because here's what gets me about it, is that if you watch the clip, his like body language and his tone is like, can you believe this? And the crowd's with him. They're like, he's making a great point about how absurd this all is. And I'm just like, what is happening right now? <laughs> What's the movie like Idiocracy or whatever? Like yeah, where it's we're like, living it. Yeah, we're <laughs> Oh, man. Ravi, the other day for a interview to promote the book, I was on with our friends at the Midas Touch. And it was really funny because they were all drinking their athletic greens during the show. And I know you and I, usually, I think both of us have the same habit of first thing in the morning. But respect to them. They wait until they're recording the show and recording the ads to drink their athletic green. I was very impressed by it. Yeah. I mean, someday there's going to be like an athletic greens bar where you just go to it and everybody's just drinking <laughs> athletic greens. Be certainly way more healthy than drinking alcohol. And the reason why is because athletic greens includes 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, adaptogens. I travel with it. And so when I was at my aforementioned tennis camp, I brought a whole packet of those and I went through those. And on days that are strenuous like that, sometimes I take twice as many because you know you're metabolizing more when you're active. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. I bet a lot of you wonder, do they just use the same audio every time of Jason or Ravi saying this part at the end? No, it's new audio every time, as you can tell right now. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash majority. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash majority to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Jason, you and I actually rebooted this podcast in part because you joined this fitness group that I have for a bunch of like burnt out professionals. And we're now on our fourth cohort for this fitness group. And I would say this time and in looking back, the number one kind of question I get is around food. Like how does your body react to food? What kind of food you should be eating? And that's why I'm super pumped about Everly Well because they seem to solve so many of the, the problems and common questions that we get in this group. Yeah, Everly Well is digital healthcare designed for you, all at an affordable and transparent price. With over 30 at-home lab tests, you'll be able to choose the test that makes the most sense for you to get the answers that you need, like the women's health test or the food sensitivity test. And for listeners of the show, Everly Well is offering a special discount of 20% off an at-home lab test at everlywell.com slash majority54. That's everlywell.com slash majority54 for 20% off your next at-home lab test, everlywell.com slash majority54. Well, speaking of the idiocracy, let's get to the news of the week. So there are new revelations from the January 6th hearing from Tuesday, and I wouldn't say that there was anything in particular here that was going to be the thing that's going to convince our listeners or people in their lives that there's some threshold being crossed. But, you know, a couple of interesting things here. I think the theme of this was that Trump and the people around him played an active role in encouraging the events of January 6th. Uh, they released things like a draft tweet from Trump saying that he was going to make a speech that morning at the Ellipse and to be there at 10 a.m. There was... I think some really interesting interviews like Brad Pascal, who is the Trump campaign manager, or not interview, but the information released where he was messaging people the night of January 6th. And this is a quote from his text messages. He said, a sitting president asking for a civil war. I've lost faith. Trump's rhetoric killed somebody. So, you know, notable that people like us who were pointing to Trump's culpability are being called alarmist and exaggerating, but his own campaign manager was saying that. Liz Cheney also accused Trump of witness tampering. She, I mean, look, I've I've kind of soft peddled the Liz Cheney praise on here before, but like she didn't just accuse him. She straight up like warned him. Like yeah. she, she was like, hey, hey, we know about it. 
don't do it again. Like, I mean, it was like, I bet he, I think he saw that and went, ooh, shit. I wish I knew more about how the laws that govern normal court proceedings apply to the U.S. Congress, right? Because we'll talk about Bannon and how Bannon is, you know, getting hauled in front of federal court for contempt of Congress for refusing to show up. So obviously there are some rules in effect that are similar. Obviously you can't perjure yourself. I believe in the same, like same rules apply for getting in front of Congress. I'm wondering like, does witness tampering also apply here? There well, was also I mean, this- it is a federal investigation, right? So it should be the same. It should be like, just like if you, look, I'm talking out of my fourth point of contact, but I think it should be like if you interfere with an active federal investigation. Yeah, that that would be interesting. We could add that to the possible uh, legal liabilities that Trump has. And then there was this revelation of a December 20th meeting, you know, after so this is after the election and there was a screaming match in the White House that was reported on and a, and a, I'm not making this up. Apparently, uh there were three people who were key advisors to Trump who wanted the Department of Defense to seize voting machines. Now, the three people were Sidney Powell, so Trump's lawyer, that would make a little bit of sense. Michael Flynn, who notable that he's back in the picture, and then the CEO of Overstock.com. I don't know how I don't understand what the CEO of Overstock.com is doing in the White House, advising the president on seizing voting machines. But that apparently was the climate on December twentieth, and I think there were a bunch of people arguing back that this was insane, and it turned into a long hours long sh- shouting match. Here's my thing on all this is that um, <laughs> it just it's like a parody. It's like every time there's a hearing, it just gets worse and worse. And you're just like, wait, what? And it's like we're all just acting like this is a regular investigation as if literally any facts had been unearthed that were in any way contrary to the prevailing narrative, which is, yeah, they tried to take over the country in a coup. Like, like there hasn't been a single piece of evidence introduced that's like, well, they didn't mean to, or they didn't know that was going to happen. It's like all the evidence is like, yes, it is exactly as it appears to be. Well, on that front, there was a clip that Mother Jones unearthed from Steve Bannon. And this clip is from right before the November election, October 31st, I, th- I believe it was, of 2020. And so, you know, this was, the election was imminent here when he's making these claims. The Democrats, more of our people vote early that count. Theirs vote in mail. And so they're going to have a natural disadvantage and Trump's going to take advantage of it. That's our strategy. He's going to declare himself a winner. So when you wake up Wednesday morning, it's going to be a firestorm. We're going to have Antifa crazy, the media crazy, the courts are crazy, and Trump's going to be sitting there mocking, tweeting shit out, you lose. <laughs> I'm the winner. I'm the king. And he'll be all over. He'll be, he'll be going, where's Hunter? Is Hunter on a crack pipe? I mean, no, he'll be, because then it doesn't matter. Remember, here's the thing. After then, Trump never has to go to a voter again. He's going to fire Ray, the FBI director, and fire the going to say, fuck you. How about that? Because he's never going to, he's, he's done his last election. Oh, he's going to be off the chain. He's going to be crazy. <laughs> also, also if, Trump <laughs> is, if Trump is losing mm. by 10 or 11 o'clock at night, mm. it's going to be even crazier. Because he, no, because he's going to sit right there and say they stole it. I'm, yeah. going to the court, uh, Agreed. I'm directing the attorney general mm. to shut down all ballot places in all 50 states. It's going to be no. <laughs> he's not going out easy. If, Trump, if Biden's winning, Trump is going to do some crazy shit. I mean... What the fuck else does anybody need to hear? Like, it's like fucking Bannon's a Bond villain and he's like, thinks he's about to kill Bond. And he's like, let me tell you my whole plan. Let me even make sure that when I say Ray's name. It's it's the Dr. Evil moment. Remember like Scott is like, no, let's just kill. Let's just kill the guy. (laughs) He's like, he's like, Scott, you don't, Scott, you don't understand. Scott, you just don't get it, do you? You don't. <laughs> he even is like, he doesn't just say Ray. He's like, let me make sure that when people hear this in a couple of years, they remember who that is. So he says, Ray, the FBI director. Like, it's just yeah, like. It's like unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, what a, like, he says he's the king. He's going to be a king. 
It's be- amazing. Now, let's put this in context because people would be like, Bannon's a loon or whatever. This is the guy who's the chief strategist on the campaign and in the White House. This is like as if David Axelrod were saying this and a guy who is a super prominent member of the right. And once again, you got people giggling in the background. The guy's talking about a coup, right? And he says all the things before they happen that played out. All the things. I mean, it's it's like if there were like a there was audio of Oswald being like, "Here's what I'm going to do." People are going to think there's folks on the grassy knoll, but no, no, no. It's just going to be me the whole time. Like, unbelievable. Yeah, I, I just. How soon can he go to prison? Like, well, th- speaking of which, he is going to trial uh, in for a federal trial next week. He tried, so basically, he's going to trial for federal contempt charges uh, for contempt of Congress. And he tried to convince a judge, actually a Trump appointed judge this week, that he had a last minute change of heart saying he was now willing to testify. And this judge says this is not relevant and this isn't going to save his ass. And once again, a Trump appointed judge. So really interesting. And so he's going to trial next week. He must not have known. He must not have known about this audio. Like, what's he going to do? He's going to, I mean, I'm, I guess we know what he's going to do. He's going to go in and he's going to be like, I was kidding. I was performing for those people. It was a tr- or what? Or he's going to be like, yeah, I did that and none, there's nothing wrong. Or I, I don't understand. I, clearly, Trump didn't know about the audio when Trump said, you can go testify. He's going to say, I was just predicting something that happened. But he said, he said, that's our strategy. Right. No, yeah, he said that's our strategy, but I would I would imagine he has said on his show, not an avid Bannon listener, I would say that he has said on his show that the election actually was stolen. So what I would want to know from his people listening, you know, and I got some people in my life, including one very prominent one who believes this bullshit, and I'd be like, look, how do you reconcile this? Like, I feel like this is the Walker thing with the people giggling in the background. I'm like, do you actually believe this or are you just playing some game? And this is like the whole Bannon strategy of chaos and all this. And this is who we're dealing with. It's just like, they don't, they don't, they're not genuine. They're not on the level. They're not actually advocating for something in good faith. They just think that the chaos is the point. And that's what we're fighting against right now. It's like, look, man, there's not been a lot of stuff over the last few years anymore where you're like, that's ama- it's amazing. That audio is amazing. I mean, you're totally right. It is Dr. Evil being like, this is the whole plan. I right. It's um. It also is like what an egomaniacal asshole he is that he has such a need to hold court like that and for people to know that he did it. Like this is why bad guys like him get caught in conspiracies because they can't keep it to themselves. They need people to know. So this is not even just a David Axelrod to Obama situation. This is a guy who. Trump has already pardoned once. So part of his flirtation, if not outright embrace of illegal activity and I don't give a fuck mentality is he knows that he's got the potential next president of the United States who can cover his ass. And that's why we got to continue fighting this stuff. It's like all these people need to be behind bars. If Steve Bannon dies anywhere other than prison, we failed. Like, I mean, come on. I want to be clear because there's somebody at the RNC whose job it is to write all this down. I didn't say. I didn't say anything about violence toward Bannon. I'm talking about justice. I'm saying yes, yeah. at the end of that guy's natural life, he should be in prison. That's what I'm, I'm just going to be clear. Right. Yeah. In the words of John Brown, we ride for justice. Well, I want to tell you all about this banking app called Dave. This is an app that helps you budget for upcoming expenses and alerts you if you're in danger of overdraft. So it's kind of like an add-on to your existing accounts that just helps you keep track of everything and avoid a disaster. It also allows you to take an advance with no interest and there's no credit check required. Uh, And so this is like you could use this to finally tackle expenses that are stressing you out. And millions of people have already downloaded this app to get the financial relief that they need with extra cash. And so if you're in a pinch and you need some extra help or you just want to be more sophisticated about how you monitor various things going on in your financial life, download Dave and think of it as a helping hand from a future you. So download the Dave app from the App Store right now. That's D-A-V-E, sign up for an extra cash account and get up to $500 instantly. For terms and conditions, go to dave.com slash legal and instant transfer fees apply. Banking provided by Evolve, member FDIC. Future you will thank you. 
Ravi, as you know, uh, I recently did a guest spot on Pantsuit Politics. It's actually the second time that I've been on there. I really enjoyed that show a lot. The host sent me their book. So anyway, we're big fans of that podcast. We're probably going to do something with them at some point, have them on here. And so we wanted to tell everybody about it. As hard as it is to engage in political conversations, it is important. Politics impacts so many aspects of our life. Pantsuit Politics was named one of Apple's 2021 shows of the year, and it's dedicated to having political conversations that inspire rather than deplete us. Pantsuit Politics is a podcast to help us understand politics, democracy, and the news while treating each other like thoughtful human beings. This probably sounds very familiar to the listeners of this show. There's a lot of similarities between the two. The hosts, Sarah and Beth, are Kentucky moms, lawyers, and friends who take a different approach to the news than you're used to hearing from traditional outlets. You know, they blend hard facts with important social and cultural undercurrents so that you don't miss the big picture. I'm a huge fan of this podcast. Listen to it every Tuesday and Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Well, a little something different now that we've announced some people who we think should be in prison. Ravi, let's do a different part of the court system. You know, we've been we've had a bunch of special episodes recently, and we haven't had a chance to take stock of some of the other decisions that have been handed down by the Supreme Court other than Dobbs. So obviously, we think Dobbs is a really important and tragic decision. There are a few other decisions that the Supreme Court has handed down that are very alarming. In, in their own respects. I would start with this EPA case, so West Virginia versus EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency case. This one is not getting enough attention, and it's a little complicated, but essentially this is a case that was brought by West Virginia and other GOP-led states in conjunction with a few power companies, especially coal-powered companies. And they claim that the Environmental Protection Agency exceeded its authority with something called the Clean Power Plan, which was a proposed rule under the Obama administration to reduce emissions from power plants. And basically what the Obama administration wanted to do was to allow power companies to reduce emissions across their entire fleets and not just within the fence line of individual power plants. That was notable because at the time, the Obama administration tried to do cap and trade through Congress, but couldn't. So essentially, they're trying to get at the same aims through regulatory action. They actually wound up not doing that. And the Trump administration wound up rescinding the momentum towards that anyway. But the question now is, like, did the EPA exceed its authority in doing that? And the background here is that the Obama administration, in attempting to do what they were doing, was using the Clean Air Act statute, which has this language that says that the EPA can, quote, determine the best system of emissions reduction for buildings that emit air pollutants. So why am I quoting the statute? Because basically in challenging the government's ability to do this type of action, these Republican states and now the Supreme Court has signed on to this belief that even though what I just read is very broad language, seems to give the EPA the authority to do what Obama was trying to do. They can't because it's not specific enough. This is kind of a new rule kind of made up by the Supreme Court in many ways. They call it the major questions doctrine, essentially saying if the executive branch is trying to do major things of economic and political importance, the language of the statute needs to be super specific about that. And just broad language giving them authority is not enough. This is kind of a made up thing, but has huge consequences beyond this case. So it's like, this is judicial activism, right? I mean, this is them, like, they just, they're like, at the same time that they're like, hey, uh, because the word privacy doesn't occur in this, you know, centuries old document, there's no privacy, but- It's worse than that. Yeah, It's worse right? than that. No, because it's, it's like as if the constitution did say, or through statute, that there is a right to privacy, but then people were like, oh, now let me make a, let me start making oh, right, policy right. on that and be more specific. And they'll be like, no, they just gave a broad right to privacy. So it's, it's like if the Constitution had the word privacy, but they're like, mm, doesn't say abortion. Right. Yeah. I mean, in a way. Right. And so and what makes this even weirder was that this this rule isn't in effect. They're basically ruling on this because Biden is basically gearing up to issue rules that are similar to what Obama did. And, you know, Kagan wrote the dissent. And she was pretty scathing in her dissent. And she says that the court is appointing itself instead of Congress, the expert agency. She says that the current court is textualist only when it suits it and basically says that they're 
creating a get out of text free card. And basically what she's saying is you pretend to be originalist, which for people who are not familiar with the court, basically is this, you know, a lot of conservatives claim that they're only reading the constitution as written, or they're, they're only reading uh, st- statues as written, and they're not trying to read into these statues any meaning that isn't there. And what Kagan is saying, well, this is the statute clearly giving the government the authority to do this. And now you're saying they can't because it's not specific enough. And uh, this is a thing called, it's like a jargony thing called the major questions doctrine, which has kind of been implied in some cases going all the way back to 1980, but has never been explicitly stated and embraced in this way. It was definitely at work during the OSHA cases and the COVID vaccine requirement case that we saw recently. But this is the first time the court actually explicitly says that they're embracing this doctrine. And this is going to apply to all executive functions now. So there are a whole bunch of things that the the, the federal government does, whether it's FCC net neutrality, whether it's the Security and Exchange Commission's rules around disclosure that they're trying to push for disclosure of companies to disclose their their greenhouse gas emissions, EPA's tailpipe emission standards. I mean, you can go on to say so much of what the government does. Basically, this is their way of backdoor trying to limit uh, the executive government's ability to do a bunch of shit. Uh, And so if you combine that with congressional inaction, just a whole bunch of stuff is not going to be happening moving forward. So this this is a hugely momentous case. All right. Next super depressing thing. <laughs> so that's one case. Another one is obviously near and dear to my heart. This is a New York case about concealed carry permits. And the court ruled that New York's concealed carry permitting law is unconstitutional and violates the Second Amendment. And this is an interesting case because we've talked about previously, I've mentioned that the court hasn't embraced a individual right to a gun until very recently, I think until 2008, the Heller case. And previously, the Supreme Court has viewed the Second Amendment and has looked at the sort of militia language of the Second Amendment to say, all right, the Second Amendment is kind of a collective right in certain well-regulated circumstances, not an individual right. But now this is the next wave of the court, not only saying in Heller, which was a case in D.C., which was that what, what was that issue is people keeping guns in their home. This is now an, another extension of that and going even further saying now you basically have a right to carry a gun in public, concealed carry, and saying that New York can't regulate these things on their own and rescinds the law. Now, to be clear, New York's concealed carry permitting law is a disaster in many ways. Essentially, it's it's very favorable to celebrities, but not people who are individual citizens who have legitimate threats to their safety on par with the celebrities. There's also like a corrupt, like bribing of police officer culture, which is the way you get these permits in the first place. But that's not what the court was taking issue with here. They they laid out a broad rule. Thomas wrote this opinion saying that uh, courts can uphold gun restrictions only if there's a tradition of such regulation in U.S. history. But and I'll pause there. There's there's a lot wrong with Thomas is saying, but this has been. I mean, what the hell? Yeah, this is a problem. And But this once again, this is the court with Kagan, what she said in the EPA case. She's saying you're textualist right. when it suits you, which obviously the Second Amendment has all this language around militia. The court has long read that language the way I read it, which is as a collective right. But also Thomas's own standard doesn't work here because there's this former federal judge named Michael Ludig. You might remember this name because he was mentioned as a potential Bush Supreme Court just, justice back in the day, and people thought he was too conservative. So he never made it onto the court. He wrote a, an amicus brief to the Supreme Court pointing out, this is, remember, this is a conservative justice who was viewed as too conservative at the time of the Bush administration to sit on the court, wrote an amicus brief on the Supreme Court going back to the time of the ratification of the Second Amendment and the early colonial days, saying one state after another, saying these are laws that were way more expansive than New York in regulating concealed carry, basically saying you can't carry a gun in public in a lot of these states. Thomas's own standard here doesn't even work because there is a tradition of these types of regulations. So the court is making up a standard and then not even, it's not even a standard that that works in history. I mean, there's a tradition in the Republican Party of these kinds of, I mean, if you, like Giuliani was, Giuliani was like one of the lead guys on gun control when he was, you know, coming off being a federal prosecutor. Ronald Reagan like didn't think people should have assault weapons. And I've talked about Warren Burger, who's a Nixon appointee. I think he was a Nixon appointee, was, you know, viewed at the time as one of the most conservative justices we have, we'd have, called the individual right 
to have gone a fiction, but Nixon himself felt the same, you know, and then that was around the turning point, you know, and there's, there's a whole history about this where the NRA basically went from being a, an organization that was actually about regulation of guns and sporting to an organization that was taken over by a bunch of anti-immigrant people from the West, including a former like federal immigration enforcement agent who then took over, basically had a coup of the NRA. And from that point forward, the Republican Party flipped. So even Reagan himself, who was very pro-regulation when he was in California, when he was running for president, flipped to, you know, kind of a Second Amendment, you know, revisionist. All right. Well, on the bright side, New York pretty quickly passed a fix to this, right? Yeah. So this new law is pretty expansive. Now, we'll see if this passes muster, but they say that you have to hand over your social media accounts as part of the screening process, et cetera. And so I don't even know, like, honestly, this court is so disingenuous and they've shown a propensity to contradict themselves left and right. And I, I think this is, I think the court has been politicized basically most of our lifetime, especially going from 2000 with the Bush v. Gore decision on. I would say this is a new level of like, they just really don't care about the perception of the court anymore. So I'm not sure if New York's revised language will stand, but it, it is interesting move by them because a lot of these people in the mass shootings like Uvalde, there's extensive social media histories of people flirting with the idea of committing these atrocities or sometimes outright publicly stating them. So if, if a red flag law incorporates social media history, that could potentially stop some of these atrocities. All right. Coach Prayer case. One more decision. So uh, another 6-3 decision, uh, there was a case, and this is the one I would be least alarmed about if I were our listeners, not because I agree with the decision, just because I don't think it's as far reaching as some of these other ones that, that I've mentioned. But this is a case of a high school football coach who had been warned multiple times not to pray at the 50-yard line after games. There's a whole dispute about the facts of this case, about how many students joined in and at what times and after the warning, yada, yada, yada. And if you listen to the oral arguments, it's a disaster. Like neither the liberal justices nor the conservative justices could even agree on what facts were relevant uh, legally here. Like there's a whole question of like, what is that issue? Is it the entirety of the coach's conduct, which it seems everybody agrees were inappropriate, or was it just the final incident of the coach's conduct, which I think involved him praying by himself, which is more favorable to the people who want to defend his quote unquote religious freedoms. But essentially, this was a case that's a dispute about whether school officials violated the rights of non-believers, you know, people who don't want to be compelled or people who have just other religious beliefs. So coercing them or establishing a religion, which is unconstitutional. Or it's a case about whether the government and eventually firing this coach because the school district fired him or didn't renew his contract violated the coach's free exercise and free speech rights because, you know, he was praying and he was fired for that. So it's like, you know, to be clear, like, is the government establishing a religion or, or are they preventing somebody from exercising a religion? So it was kind of a tension case, but they ruled in favor of the coach saying that he uh, it was free speech and free exercise. I think I'm with you in that maybe it doesn't get me as exercised just because the other cases are just so horrific. Um, but also, I guess maybe I am um, desensitized to this stuff because I'm a Jew who grew up in the middle of the country. And I'm surrounded by like, you know, every time there's a prayer at an event, it's, you know, it's about Jesus and stuff. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. Whatever, you know, like it never, and I went to, I, was, I went to Catholic school where like, they just had us pray all the time. So I'm not saying that means it's not a big deal. I just think maybe my own personal experience is is coloring my perception of this. Yeah. The one notable thing I would say about this, though, is like, you know, there's a trend here of new tests being embraced by this court. And so there is something notable that could be applied in other situations. Because like in this case, most people concede that if this coach prayed privately, it wouldn't be an issue. It's just a question of like how public is the 50 yard line and all that. And honestly, like, I just don't care. Like, I, it's like if he's at the 50 yard line, he, he's not if he had asked students to join him or whatever, I think everybody agrees it would have violated 
any test that this court would have applied. So it's just so specific to these facts. But what is notable, though, is that the court had previously used one test in these circumstances called the endorsement test, essentially saying the, the, the government has violated the First Amendment if any public agency official in their official duties endorses one religion, right? That was the old test. The new test, which the court had been flirting with and had shown up in various decisions up until now, but has never been fully embraced in this way, is called a coercion test. And it is a much more favorable test for people who want to allow prayer in, um, by public officials or any religious activity, because it basically says, even if the government endorses a particular religion or a government official does, like in this case, like a government official in their official duties praying, as long as that prayer doesn't coerce non-believers into doing that activity, then it's fine. And so they, this court, Gorsuch wrote this opinion, they used the coercion test, basically saying, this guy, it, we wasn't. there's no evidence that the other players felt coerced to do this. So therefore, it's fine. So they're applying a new test that could be applied to other cases. So that's why I find this notable. All right, so we've gone over the cases. There's also this issue that's been very much in the news, which is the the protesting of the justices uh, out in public. So there was a threat to, uh, I believe it was Kavanaugh's life, right, recently that, that was unearthed in the press. And obviously that's terrible in like any official, no matter who they are, including the people I disagree with the most, it goes without saying that we should treat these things seriously and nobody should ever resort to violence. And that's the context of which that plus, I think, a real frustration on, on, on the behalf of activists to try to get through to a very anti-democratic branch of government is the context here, where, as we've talked about, I think, on this podcast before, uh, the Supreme Court has set up barricades outside of the Supreme Court, even though they told abortion clinics in previous cases that they couldn't do the same. Um, this is a court that doesn't apply any of the same ethics rules to itself that almost any other government body does. It's a court that was appointed in many cases by presidents who didn't win the popular vote. And in certain circumstances, like the Merrick Garland situation, where there's all sorts of weird anti-democratic stuff happening in the Senate, you put that all together with the Dobbs decision and, and some of these other decisions, you have a bunch of frustrated activists. They have now um, there's one activist group in D.C. now that's offering money for Supreme Court justice sightings in D.C. I think uh, I, I don't know this activist group, but I presume it's because they want to protest these justices when they're out in public. This is and, you know, this is in line with I think there was a, we talked about Alito's house protests outside of his house. This makes me feel queasy, but I get it. I get the frustration around just trying to find a way to get in front of these justices to let them know you're frustrated. Well. The whole setup from the beginning is that they're supposed to be immune from the public pressure of elections. They're not supposed to be immune from having to actually like be around other Americans who disagree Agreed. with them. Like, I mean, think about it. Like when the country started, Washington was, you know, a, a small town. Like, you know, when the capital once the capital moved and it was like, okay, we got the Supreme Court down the street, they were making decisions knowing like, I'm gonna run into Marbury. You know right. what I mean? I'm going to run into, you know, I'm going to run into Madison. Uh, that's going to be awkward. It's like, so what the hell's the difference, right? Like you're, right. you're, you're trying to have your, your medium stake, you know, like, look, honestly, I, I think, yeah, I think he probably has it like well done. He seems like that kind of guy. And, yeah. you know, and so I think he's sitting there putting ketchup on his well done steak. And yeah, there's people who think that you shouldn't take away their rights outside. They're called your neighbors, asshole. Like it's no different than it was before. I, I, I think it's great that we don't subject our Supreme Court justices to elections so that they can, you know, have their fidelity be to the law. I also think that your neighbors are going to get mad when you do terrible things and you, you, you don't get to exist consequence free of your neighbors being upset with you. Yeah. And, and the, they get mad also sometimes when you do the right thing. And that's just part of democracy. You know, and I'm fascinated to see what the judicial system does with this type of stuff, because this is they get to police themselves here. So are they going to once again apply a different First Amendment standard to themselves than they apply to other people? That is a big question I'm interested in. And this court just seems to not care uh, at all about being consistent. And so if they do this, if they if they issue a ruling about themselves that shields them from legitimate protest again in a different way. I mean, 
we're this is getting into just unbelievable chutzpah. It's banana republic stuff. Like, yeah, it's what it is. It's like we should be clear. He didn't even like ever see or hear them. You know, is they that took right? him. Yeah, they took him out through a back door, and like because somebody said, "Hey, there's some protesters out front." Like. Nobody threatened him, nor should anyone ever threaten him. Like right. not, Nobody yeah. should threaten violence. Nobody should intimidate. Nobody should do any of those things. But yeah. if if you're out at a fancy restaurant and you've issued a ruling that a lot of people disagree with, like that's America. They get to go out in front of the restaurant and hold signs and say, hey, we don't agree with that. Yeah. Like it's like, let me get this straight. You want to lie to Congress uh, about your opinions about Roe overturn it, and then you don't want to deal with any scrutiny. You never want to see another regular citizen again, you know, who's not your waiter. Like, I'm sorry. Like, that's too much to ask. When I ran for Senate, the tracker used to follow us to the grocery store. You don't hear me crying about it. Like, well, I actually wrote a whole passage in the book about how much trouble I had with the tracker. But that's because I have PTSD. Uh, so, you weren't crying yeah. about it, though. You, <laughs> no. I, yeah. I, I was like, I get, you know, because I recognized that we had a tracker on the other guy. Right. This is what it is, man. Like you wanted to be a Supreme Court justice. Like you're a Supreme Court justice. Sorry, you you might have to if you don't want to be protested, you might have to get your ketchup and well done steak carry out. All right. Thank you again to everybody who has bought Invisible Storm already. You can go to invisiblestormbook.com or get it wherever you buy books. Uh it has been quite a week. So thank you to everybody who has bought it, who has read it, who has said things about it. Thank you very much. I I really, really appreciate it. You can leave us a voicemail about any of the stuff we said here or any of the stuff you'd like us to tackle or if you've been trying to persuade somebody and it has been going well or hasn't, whatever. Leave us a voicemail or leave us an email. Voicemail is 508-687-2589. 508-687-2589. Email is m54 at wondermedianetwork.com. m54 at wondermedianetwork.com. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Sorry that everything that I've put out has been about the book recently. That will not subside anytime soon. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. So, you know, his has been delightful. I mean, camps, lots of tennis, <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh, our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch, Edie Allard, and Adesua Agbanile. And theme music is provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.